This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Script to Screen. I'm your host, Matt Ryan. Tonight's show, Jaws. Our theater audience just had the privilege of seeing it on the big screen. For most of them, it was their first time. There's nothing better than the communal experience of being scared, exhilarated, and, of course, psychologically traumatized together. I remember as a seven-year-old seeing the film, and that night thinking sharks were going to eat me from my backyard. Of course, I went back the next day, which shows the impact the film had on me. So tonight, we're going to have a therapy session with one of the men greatly responsible for this film, the screenwriter, Carl Gottlieb. So, so Carl, um, I mean, obviously, we, did, we just mentioned that most of the people have only seen it on home video, iPad. How is it for you kind of seeing it again 40 years later with an, a fresh new audience? I, I always enjoy watching the film with an audience because part of our business is the relationship of the audience to, to the event and the immersion of the audience in the event. And... As a screenwriter, when you make movies, I mean, you know that there's audiences out there. You go to test screenings. But uh, there is no substitute for the collective energy that's available when, you know, more than five people are watching in a, th- you know, in a theater to, to, when they're sharing a communal experience. Um, you all shrieked and jumped when the head appeared. <laughs> I can tell you that uh, when the film first opened, uh, you know, we, we knew it was getting that reaction, and my wife and I and Steven Spielberg and one or two other people would be out for, for dinner. We look at our watch and say, it's, it's, time, it's, time, it's close to time for the head. So <laughs> we, would, we would drive over or walk over if we were in Westwood Village to the theater where Jaws was playing, and the manager knew us, he'd let us in. And we just stand in the back. And the theater was, you know, always, that summer, the theaters were sold out every show, you know, nine in the morning till midnight. And we'd go stand in the back of the theater and just watch, you know, 800 heads on the orchestra floor. And that moment would come, and you'd watch the whole audience go, woof, like that. 800 people levitate off their chairs. I, I should I should say uh, this is a shameless self promotion. I I wrote a book about this experience called the Jaws Log, uh, which is uh, to this day uh, the best selling book about the making of a movie ever. You know any movie ever, uh, and it's still in print. It's still available. Normally I would have a box of them here and I would sell them to you and sign them, but uh, they didn't get packed, <laughs> so you'll have to. Uh, Trust me that it's a good read. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or perhaps in the local bookstores. It's called The Jaws Log and by by Carl Gottlieb. It's got pictures, a lot of stills from the the film and some stills of scenes that didn't make it into the film, including one where I fell in the water (laughs) because the discovery of Ben Gardner's boat in the original, in the script that we started shooting... Uh, involved the guy from the newspaper was going to be in the boat. They went out during the day to find Ben Gardner. And uh, we see the boat, and we pull up alongside, and I go lean over to, to tie it up. And on take two, I leaned over too far and went head first into the water, <laughs> uh, soaking my microphone, my wardrobe, 
cut. And since I was a secondary character, they didn't have my wardrobe double. They didn't have doubles of my wardrobe, so they would have had to wait for it to dry to get take three. So they decided, okay, we'll, we'll film this later. We'll come back for this. We'll do something else today. And in the course of the rewrites, you know, it became evident that it would be scarier if we found the boat at night and if Meadows wasn't there. So let's just do it with the protagonists, with Hooper and Brody. And we got a much scarier scene and the, you know, biggest scream in the movie. So let's go a little bit about to the beginning. Uh, we'll dive into a little of the characters. Uh, Martin Brody, I read the book, and um, Martin Brody is kind of was insecure, sexually frustrated in a marriage. He's kind of a co-conspirator even more in the book than the movie about covering up, making sure the town stayed open. Uh, but in the, your movie, he's happily married. He has a good family. Uh, afraid of the water. Nice little touch. What was it about Martin that you want to flip? What did you, how did you see Martin? Maybe well, why he wasn't working originally? Well, we, when uh, in, in the novel and in the early drafts of the screenplay by Peter Benchley and another writer named Howard Sackler who worked on the screenplay before I did, um, the characters, the, the trouble with a novel is uh, not, uh, adapting a novel. Uh, a, a novel is you know, rich and textured, and even though Jaws was not you know, a complicated literary work, it was a summer, you know, a summer read, uh, but it still had a lot of subplot. You know, there was a, the reason they wanted the beaches open, and the mayor had invested heavily in a mafia-backed real estate development on the beach and there's a whole lot of and, and the wife was a, an islander who had married an off-islander um, and uh, missed she has an affair with, with the attractive uh, six foot blonde oceanographer <laughs> slightly uh, different than Richard Douglas yeah. <laughs> yeah. so what we did when we start, first started working on the script was first we had to prune we just you know cutting away all the underbrush and leave the bare bones of the story. And then when we had the actors and we saw them working, it became obvious that you know, she was not going to have an affair with Hooper. It would be you know, un- incredible. It would make her a less sympathetic character. It would make Hooper deserving of death. Hooper dies in the book because you know, God's punishment for being an adulterer. Uh, you know, all that stuff came out, and we concentrated on the relationship between the three men and the fish. And, and uh, it made the whole film scarier and more um, involving of the audience to have them be as you know, interesting, normal people as we can make them. You know, now, you know, Quint is all kind of over-the-top obsessive about sharks. Hooper is over-the-top obsessive about science. You know, you have... Uh, ap- Dionysian man and Apollonian man and in the middle every man uh, Brody who's got to balance these competing forces so unlike most you know traditional dramatic construction where you've got a hero and a villain and a sidekick uh, we had you know a, a protagonist that was a tripartite individual you know three sides of, of man and these this three cornered stool had to have all its components working. The three men had to work together for their common survival, even though they had you know, no other self-interest and no, no other motivation to do so. But when push came to shove and they had the giant fish 
eating the boat from under them, they have to work together. It's really interesting because for me, Brody, because in the book, the kids were just kind of almost secondary. The yeah. kids In this movie, you put the kids in peril. I mean, was mm-hmm. that something important where you just wanted to raise the personal stakes? For- yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the whole, one of the, my the principal, you know, uh, the charge, you know, that I had, you know, the, 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 the task I was given was to make these people as lovable and engaging and as human as possible. That's why there's a lot of humor in the film. And I had come to the movie from being a comedy writer, not, not a horror film writer. And it was the humanity of all the protagonists that made you care for them. You know, and, and, and uh, that's, that made it a more effective movie. And we discovered that as we were rehearsing and writing and shooting, we, you know, you, we said, oh, we, you know, we really got to care for these people. So, now, I mean, you had a terrific cast, Roy, Richard, and yeah. Robert Shaw. The, the triangle, they were amazing actors. Is there anything any of them wanted, like when you were working with their, their script, they're like, hey, can we move in this direction? I'm, lo- I'm loving this part. Can we go further here? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it was uh, an incredibly collaborative experience. I can't stress too much what a you know, tremendous collaboration it was. Uh, you know, actors felt were encouraged to improvise their lines, you know, by, by Stephen. Uh, for years, I refused to take credit for You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat, which is the, icon- <laughs> the iconic line from that movie. And then one, and finally, it was some of the fans out there who have, you know, watched this film still frame by still frame 2,000 times, one of them said, look, in the, in the Blu-ray DVD edition, is a, in the additional materials, is an interview with Scheider where he says that it was in the script. I said, really? I mean, I don't, I don't even remember putting it in the script. But it, it, um, And then it, I went to the materials, and there Roy explains how you're going to need a bigger boat wound up in the movie where you see it. Uh, and it was in the script. Uh, other scenes were not. I mean, there's a, a one of the townswomen, uh, uh, the uh, the one with the glasses, was very articulate, very articulate about her problems. Uh, you know, I don't think that's funny at all. Uh, most of her stuff was, you know, she made that up. And one of the things that I take pride in is, in a, as a writer, is if you've created a character or a milieu where the actors can completely inhabit the characters, when it comes time to ad lib or blurt something out because of the exigencies of the moment, the actor will speak in character because you've given the actor a strong enough character that if the actor is inhabiting the character, he'll continue to write dialogue that you might have written if you had a little extra time. But then the actor, under the pressure of the moment, comes up with a line. But in context, and that's that's... The valuable thing a writer can do is create fully fleshed characters that the actors can inhabit, and then then you can trust them to to do things. And Steven Spielberg's genius in in casting, and Shari Rhodes, who cast that movie and you know, ten other Spielberg films, um, they had a particular knack for using untra- you know, non actors. Um, most of the speaking parts in the movie are not people who have ever made a living acting. Mrs. Kintner, the one who slaps... She, she was an actress, professional actress, uh, who runs, to this day, she's 80-something, runs the uh, community theater in Martha's Vineyard. She was a local hire. Um, and all, uh, uh, Polly, the secretary, I mean, that is what you would call, if, if, if it was a painting, that is American primitive, that is naive acting. 
she's she's not acting. She's like saying the words that she memorized, but she's such a presence that you buy the character. You go, yeah, that's that's who she is. And it was just like a bad acting performance, but <laughs> you don't care because Spielberg is, is genius enough to go for the larger reality of the scene. Um, so we'll, we'll t- we're going to talk a little about a character named Meadows, who is a big character in the book. But as a screenwriter, you kind of ru- you, you shrunk his character down. Did you feel any guilt ruining that actor's uh, scenes and re- reducing it? As, as a writer-actor, <laughs> that was the most painful thing I've ever had to do career-wise, is cut the part that I'm playing. You know, I'm... And normally I'd be adding pages to Meadows. You know, why doesn't Meadows talk to the mayor and they have a scene together when they talk? <laughs> you know, it, it just it seemed natural to let him go. It's interesting, if you see a release print or the VHS cassette version of this or the early posters, um, they hadn't adjusted my billing, because when I got the part, it was a big part. So the billing in the original print, it's, you know, uh, Scheider, Shaw, Dreyfus, you know, in that kind of, you know, everybody's, a, nobody's above the other. And then the next card was also starring Carl Gottlieb, Lorraine Gary, and Murray <laughs> Hamilton. You know, I get, like, co-star billing. Then when the true nature of the part emerged, <laughs> it, the, the billing block shrunk. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little about the, your opening. Uh, you know, for you, did you always envision it like you wanted this, the shark's point of view, flipping to the girl, back to the shark? Well, kind of like that reverse, you know, go back and forth. That's the, the beauty of the novel is that the shark is a character. I mean, the, mm. the novel opens with the shark's point of view, like just as the film does, you know, swimming. Uh, so that made the, you know, unlike, you know, Freddy or Jason or any of the other villains of horror films, the, the, the shark is, you know, scary because it's alive and it's not really sentient. It's not thinking. It just wants to eat. And, you know, if, you, if you're what he wants to eat, then that, so be it. There's no moral judgment. You know, it's just, a, like he says, an eating machine. So, uh, uh, and, and the, uh, the physicality of that scene where she's dragged through the water by a force that is so much larger than herself. That, that was, that was a, that's one of the great horror film deaths. I mean, most of the time in horror films, people are you know, hacked or slaughtered. You can see their heads coming off, their entrails spilling out. Here, you, you don't see anything except... And if you've ever tried to move through the water at that speed, you can't unless, you know... A, Three five thousand pound shark is, you know, pulling you, and then what was what I always thought was a wonderful, true, terrifying touch is when they go to look at the remains. It fits into a like a you know, like a cat box because you know there's nothing left of her except the you know, upper torso, head, and one arm. Now, with little you mentioned John Williams uh, in your intro. How for you? How did that when you first heard his the Jaws theme song, the Jaws your characters? What did that? What was your feeling on that one? Well, you know, we we had you know on on the set, Stephen had brought some LPs, you know, some vinyl. uh, (laughs) Remember those Uh, of of uh, some great scores of movies that took place at sea. Uh, Eric Korngold's score for the Seahawk, for example, which is an old Warner Brothers pirate film, and. He played that music for John Williams and said, "When we're at sea, when the boat is, you know, when the when it's men against the sea, you know, when it's that final uh, 
third of the movie. So, you know, we, we want that movie. And John delivered. If you look at the what we used to call the one-barrel chase, the two-barrel chase, the three-barrel chase, the music from there is right out of a 1940s Hollywood pirate film. And and the Jaws, the, the theme for the shark, um, uh, John, John Williams went up to Stephen's house and played it on the piano. He went, donk, 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 donk. <laughs> and Stephen said, that's it, you know, just two notes. And John said, well, you're going to have to trust me on this because we're booking, you know, 12 contrabasses uh, and, and a symphony orchestra, and it'll be a bigger sound than I'm playing for you now. And Stephen said, oh, geez, I, you know, I don't know. It's supposed to be scary. And it's, you know, dump, 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 dump. Well, as it turns out, it's one of the great themes of all time. And uh, I've frequently get a laugh when, when I say about, you know, swimmers, you know, you know, don't worry, you know, if you're out swimming in the ocean, you know, if you don't hear the music, you're okay. <laughs> but if you hear, doesn't get out of the water. <laughs> that, that was actually clever because when the, the, you know, the fake shark, the kids were playing the fake mm-hmm. shark, no theme song. That's right. Spielberg using a little trick to kind of trick the audience and uh, the, um, uh, I also like the uh, it's in our program too the mayor I mean you had you had the opening scene where he just convinces Brody totally takes command gets corner later he challenges Richard Dreyfus. you know are you just trying to get the name and how did you view the mayor because in the book as you mentioned he was a really dark kind of weak here he's a little more sympathetic yeah. with that kid no, he, he, he does you know he, he thinks and that's the tragedy of it I mean we used to joke Again, you know, the, the, when we're discussing the script, that it's, you know, Moby Dick meets Enemy of the People, you know, because the Ibsen play is, has a similar theme about, uh, for those of you who know Ibsen, uh, which I... <laughs> um, the, uh, the mayor is kind of a, as a tragic figure, because he, he does have the best... He's trying to act in the best interests of the town. He's trying to find the greatest good for the greatest number, and it makes him blind to the consequences of his actions. And in defense of the character, n- nobody can come up with anything that's convincing. You know, Hooper doesn't have the shark's tooth. The, they don't you know, cut the fish open in, in his presence to show that there's nothing in it. So he's, like, you know, he's acting on imperfect information and with a strong bias. And... It's only at, uh, in the hospital where there's, there's two great character touches. Part of it is Murray Hamilton, part of it is me, and part and talking to Spielberg, the three of us discussing. In the early part of the film, Murray Hamilton is smoking a, like a plastic cigarette. He's one of those menthol things that you used to use to try to quit smoking. But in the hospital, he's smoking. He's actually smoking a cigarette. And he says to Brody, my kids were out there too. So he finally realizes the the uh, what the stakes are, which kind of redeems him, and then he saw you know and he and he does yeah. abandon his his resistance and and uh, does the right thing. That was a great moment with the shark looking at Brody's kid. We had the point of view of the shark yeah, yeah. going past Brody's kid. Yeah. Uh, that was a very little touch. All right, so we got a little Quint. Great character intro, scratching the chalkboard. <laughs> what a way to, you know, because for screenwriters, character intros are the most very important things. It lands a character. How did you approach that? Because he's just. I think that was probably Robert's idea. Because there, in the, uh, one of the few scenes that was filmed and not used, I mean, everything we used 
everything in that film. There was no time to shoot ex, you know, superfluous stuff. But there was a scene filmed where we meet Quint before the town meeting, where he goes into a uh, hardware store and buys some piano wire and scares a kid to playing. He's just, he's just a frightening guy. But that was such a strong moment. And I, you know, to this day, I don't know where it came from because we used to have dinner. Uh, Stephen and I shared a house, literally lived together, uh, uh, and talked about the film until bedtime. And then he'd, and we'd wake up and talk about it at breakfast. And then if, if I was working that day, we'd talk about it in the car going to the set. If I wasn't working as an actor, then I stayed home at the cabin and wrote until everybody came back from the day's work, and we watched dailies, and I, over dinner we'd go over the pages. And uh, Shaw was very serious about his character and worked very hard on the Indianapolis speech mm. and was willing to take a cap off of his tooth. That was his invention. That was his contribution to that scene. Uh, it made him vulnerable. And... Uh, I think he said, you know, what if I scratch the bone? And, you know, Stephen and I and most people have that horrible reaction when you hear, you know, (laughs) fingernails on a blackboard. It's a terrible sound. We said, well, this is is as horrible as anything gets. What a great way to introduce a character. (laughs) So we know this is a serious guy. So. And, uh, and uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, not a well-known director by any means at that point, did a great TV movie called Duel. Highly recommend seeing it. Um, what did you did you What did you know? Did we, you know that he had he was going to be who he became? Well, we we were friends. We had the same agent uh, who signed a bunch of young people all the same year. Me, Spielberg, John Milius, Carol Eastman, Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, just a, just a great you know freshman class for uh, and that and that agent became a producer, became Mike Metavoy and headed Phoenix Pictures for mm-hmm. twenty years. But uh, so, but uh, Stephen was like the new kid in town, and I was like a, what five or six years older than him. So uh, our agent Mike Metavoy put us together and had us, you know, try to write projects for us to do. I would write, or we'd create a story together. We'd uh, go out and pitch it, and Stephen would be locked in to direct. And we couldn't get a job because nobody wanted a first, you know, a direct one. Steven Spielberg as director was a deal breaker. Well, we'll see how it goes. And then, no, no, we want to do it. So we had worked on a couple of scripts. I acted in two of his television movies, uh, just day player, did small parts, improvised. And the original intent was, you know, well, you know, we'll find you a part in a movie. Because we, we hung out socially and we were pals. And um, uh, we, he... Uh, uh, he said, "Well, get a part, and we'll get we'll get you in the film, so you'll be on location. You can work with the actors, and you know you, you're an improvising comedian because I was I was a I came to L.A. as a member of a satirical improvisational review, and so I knew the world of comedy. As a matter of fact, when I went to work on Jaws, I had to quit my day job, which was story editor on The Odd Couple on the ABC Network oh. with, with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. That's what I was doing." the day before I started Jaws. Uh, so we were pals, and uh, I was going to be on the, kind of be on the set anyway, and then I, when Stephen sent me a copy of the script, he said, I'm, I'm really not happy with it, and he wrote on the cover of the script, eviscerate it. <laughs> so I wrote a long note back to him, because everything was, you know, 
paper, paper and typewriters then. I wrote a three-page single-space memo about my reactions to the script, what I thought I would do with it. He showed that memo to the producers three weeks before we started shooting and said, look, Carl's going to probably be on the picture. Let's get him out here. Let's talk about his ideas. Here's the memo. And we had a what was going to be just coffee at the hotel turned into eight hours of a working session. And they said, can you leave on Tuesday because we're starting shooting in two and a half weeks and Stephen's going to Boston to cast extras and we have to fill out the, the rest of the cast. At that point, we had only Lorraine Gary and Roy Scheider. We didn't have wow. Sean. We didn't have uh, Dreyfus. And can you, get, you know, can you start rewriting now, this minute, you know? So with the folly of youth, I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. <laughs> Asked my wife, I said, look, you know, I'm, and in those days, uh, television was like beneath movies. You know, you, if you're a television writer, you wanted to write a movie. So I said, look, you know, we know the movie's going to be made because they're shooting it. It's not like most scripts where you write them and you never know if they're going to be made. So this is an f- active film in production. I'll do a rewrite. Maybe I'll get a screen credit. Who knows? But, the, you know, it's a good, it's a good career move to drop everything and rewrite this movie starting two weeks before we shoot it. So that's what we did. All right, so you have this great script. This, you're on the same page as Steven Spielberg. You have this great creative vision. And then the shark decides to have a slight issue. Uh, yep. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, sank to the bottom of the ocean instantly? It did a lot of things. The shark did, <laughs> did, the shark did everything wrong. Um, uh, again, a little bit of background. Uh, Universal's big pictures that year were not Jaws. The films that were in production in 1974 were Airport 75 wow. and Earthquake. Oh, uh, Hindenburg and Hindenburg. Uh, and they, I think they were gearing up for Earthquake. So it's Hindenburg and Airport 75. And those pictures were using up all the special effects on the lot. So Stevens said, you know, with the, produ- the producers wanted to get a trained shark. And they had to explain to Zanuck and Brown, you can't train sharks. Because in Hollywood, you can do anything. I mean, Hollywood is famous for really coming up with the impossible. But that was too impossible. So, so uh, uh, they, they, uh, they said, all right, you can build the shark off the lot. You don't have to use the studio special effects department. So Stephen found a guy named Bob Maddy, who was, the, who was in retirement, but he had built the giant squid in 20,000 Leagues uh-huh. Under the Sea with uh, Kirk Douglas, I think. And he, so he, he, he was a creature guy. He could build a creature. Because in those days, you know, no CGI. You had to build it. It's rubber and a steel armature, and Joe designed it. And... They had to, you know, everybody said it would take a year, and they had to do it in four months or five months. And they barely tested it in fresh water, and it was never tested in salt water until we got to Martha's Vineyard. And that was the first time the shark went in the water. And for those of you who have been around salt water here, it eats everything. You know, all the circuitry didn't work. You know, anything that was electrical was, had to be redone as pneumatic or uh, hydraulic. And there was a elaborate platform. The shir- the sh- there was a platform the size of this auditorium, uh, about four feet high, structural steel, and it had an arm on it with the shark on the top of the arm and motors that would drive it along tracks under the water, and that would be how you got 
a nice long run for the shark. And that was the big shark. And then there was a shark that was open on one side. We had a left-to-right shark and a right-to-left shark. <laughs> we had a shark that was kind of improvised, that the sea sled that was operated by two scuba divers. So, and like you know, Murphy's Law, if, it, you know, if something can go wrong, it will. So the shark didn't work, and uh, we were getting delays. And we were using up all our cover sets. Now, for those of you who have not done film production, when you start shooting a movie, you figure out what days you're going to shoot what scenes, usually way out of order. And you save some scenes... Like, for example, the coroner scene and the, the scene in the office and the dinner scene at home. You save those on days when, the, when it rains, when you can't shoot outdoors. You go, okay, we got the set built for the coroner's office. Let's move the company over there real quick and shoot indoors. So on days when the shark wasn't working, we would shoot up a, co- shoot a cover set. But every time you use a cover set and get that footage, you're done. You don't have, you don't, you don't have that luxury anymore. And then Stephen and I were... You know, mulling over what to do, what to do, because it doesn't look like the shark is going to be on time ever. Uh, he was a, he was a di- he was the most difficult actor on the set. Um, and we said, what about the thing? It was a movie, black and white horror film made back in the fifties. Very low budget, self-contained film about a a creature from space that is revived out of the ice in a, in a research station. John Carpenter remade it mm-hmm. inadequately, I think. Okay. <laughs> but in the original thing, they're in a closed environment, an, uh, an ice station you know, in the, in the Arctic, and there's a creature somewhere loose in the station that's killing people. And you only know when it's around because the Geiger counter picks up the radioactivity and goes tick, 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 tick. And... When you finally see the monster, it's quite, it's quite frightening, and it's, it's kind of like Alien. If you remember, you don't see the alien until quite late in, in the film, the, the, the whole alien. You see the little alien. <laughs> but uh, well, we said, you know what? It, if, if we shoot the early deaths in a way that just shows the, the strength and the power and the, the brutality of the thing... We don't have to show the thing, you know. Actually, we can't. But so, <laughs> so we'll build the suspense by going as long as we can without revealing the shark, and then that's that's what we did. And how was it for you and Daly the, the first time you saw the shot of the, the shark uh, swimming past the orca? Oh, that, that that that's you know that's a that's a great moment. I mean that you know that's. By the by, the time they were shooting that, I I worked on the film from you know two weeks before principal photography into the middle of the summer, and then we had shot all the dialogue. There was nothing left but the stuff at sea. Mm-hmm. Now those horizons nowadays, uh, you know, that's just off Martha's Vineyard. That's that's an Nantucket Sound. And nowadays, if there's you know a pleasure boat or a ferry boat on, in in the shot, you paint you paint it out with with computer graphics. Couldn't do that if there was a sailboat on the horizon. You had to sit there and watch that sailboat <laughs> leave the shot. And by that time, the sun had moved, so you had to move the whole, you move everything. It was so what what we had filmed every bit of dialogue there was. There was nothing left but 
storyboards, you know, mm-hmm. shots that Joe Alves and Stephen had created using illustrations, and the inside of the production. And I left. You know, I was done. They, they paid me off. I took my money, <laughs> went back to Hollywood. And Stephen and Roy and Richard and uh, Robert had to stay and go out to see every day and get, you know, shark goes left to right. Good day's work. <laughs> 11 seconds of film. Some days, no seconds of film. Some days, a nice, you know, the whole shark goes by, the whole boat, you got it all in one shot. Yay. So they would come in at the end of the day, you know, just exhausted, go to the office, cross off two storyboards or one storyboard or four shots, and that was the day's work. And they, and they did that for another two and a half months before they got back to L.A. to finish the picture. Uh, and there was, there was some tank stuff. So some stuff was shot at MGM. Some stuff shot in Verna Fields' pool. Uh, <laughs> another shot made in Joe's driveway. The side of the boat being hit from underneath. You know, you're, you're in the boat. And the, the boat is being crunched from the outside. That's a eight-foot piece of set of boat in Joe's driveway with a guy with a fire hose, not with a, not a fire, with a garden hose, squirting water through the cracks while somebody else hits it with a sledgehammer. And then you add the sound, which makes all the difference. The first time, you know, that first time when you see the shark, you know, that, that's a big oh, shriek yeah. in the theaters, and it was here too, the first time you see the shark. <clears throat> in dailies, it wasn't frightening at all because you would hear all the shark machinery and all the <laughs> people talking, all right, get it up, you know, this, this, you know, left, you know, left, left fin, yeah, got, got the eyes working, yeah, jaws working, jaws working, ready to go, ready to go, sod it up. But then you get that one shot and you go, poof, yeah, that's magic, we got it. <laughs> So you touched on it a little. Uh, I'm going to drink you over. Oh, take it, take it. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just don't put any barrels in me today. I go, I go down with just one barrel. Uh-huh. I'll come right up. Um, the the Indianapolis scene. I, I I was just blown away by it because it's the first time Hooper and Quint are even close to bonding. Yep. And the great little joke with Brody, Brody with his appendix, yeah. a little clever. But how did you flip? I mean, what was that? How did that whole thing develop? Because it was an amazing performance, too. Okay, in, in, in the schematic of the screenplay, which was basically three pieces of yellow copy paper taped together with all the scenes written in order and notes as to the side as to what, was, what needed to be accomplished, what this was doing, what that was doing. That scene was always marked in all my notes as just before the battle mother. And that comes from every World War I, World War II, Civil War movie where the troops are in the foxhole or the barracks or waiting to go over the top the next morning. And that's when the, you know, uh, they say what they're going to do when they're discharged. They show pictures of their family. They discuss the war. I mean, there's always a, a lull just before the climactic battle. And that was our lull before we, because you know, we, we knew the battle was coming, and we knew we had to have a moment for the audience to kind of catch its breath. We've had all that excitement of the first day, the one-barrel chase, and and, uh, and we had to do something that would involve us in these guys' lives 
you know, more than we've been so far. So we had all the antagonisms going, but we didn't have the bonding. And the notion of men comparing scars, uh, John Milius suggested that. And then I wrote the whole scene with scar comparisons. But the Indianapolis speech, which had been created by Howard Sackler, screenwriter. Howard Sackler was a Navy guy who knew about the Indianapolis. And he and uh, in the book, there's absolutely no motivation for Quint's character. You know, you never know why he's such a fanatic about sharks. He just is. So Howard Sackler found that motivation. He said, well, there was this incident. And he wrote a very long speech that was very clumsy. And no actor who read for the part liked it. You know, Shaw didn't like it. I knew it was clumsy and long. Mm. But we knew that scene needed, you know, needed a speech from Quint. We needed something from Quint. And Stephen was re- extremely nervous about it as we got closer and closer to the day of filming it. Uh, and he asked all his friends who were writers. I mean, I should have been offended, but I wasn't. I mean, I, <laughs> but he asked Milius, he asked Paul Schrader, he asked uh, 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 Zim, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. He asked all his writer friends. He sent them the pages, you know, faxed them and said, you know, what do you think? Well, send me something, send me something. And everybody took a crack at that speech, including me. So we had a, like 10 variations on that speech. You know, one page, a half page, a four page, you know, a three page. So we gave them to Shaw. You know. Now, what people don't know about Robert Shaw is that in addition to being an accomplished actor, he is a writer, a novelist. He wrote, he's got five, six novels published while he was still alive. And he wrote a play called The Man in the Glass Booth, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And you know, the guy knows which end of a pencil is which. And <laughs> so he took all the research and all the material and, and the... the uh, the stuff about the Indianapolis. And about two days before we were going to shoot the scene, he came to dinner at the cabin where we were living. And we had just had just finished dinner. The producers were there, and me and Stephen and Verna Fields. And um, Robert Shaw came in and says, I think I've licked that pesky speech. And he read it to us, you know, his version of it. And when he finished, you know, you could hear a pin drop. And, it, you know, it was, and Stephen said, that's it. That's what we're shooting. So, um, so we did. And the first day, Robert had uh, liked, liked to drink. And there was real whiskey in the cups in some of the, <laughs> the first day. And by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he was all over the place. He was off, the, off book. He was, he was a mess. And it, it wasn't good. And he was apologetic. He was feeling bad. He was drunk. And Stephen said, "Look, you know, we're here two days on this scene. You know, we budgeted two days. We're going to do it again tomorrow." And, and Shaw said, "I promise, cold sober, I'll do it." And the next day he came in and nailed it. But there's still some takes from the first, from the drunk day, in the, <laughs> in the scene, and you can't tell which is which because a Verna Fields is such a brilliant editor, and Robert Shaw is such a great actor, and Steven Spielberg is a great director. So, um, if you look at the close-ups, you know, on a Blu-ray, where his eyes are watery is from day one, when he was <laughs> and if his eyeballs are dry, that's from day two. But uh, 
the only person who actually wrote that scene is Robert Shaw. A lot of people have claimed credit for it. A lot of film books talk about John Milius having written it. N- not true. And as I say in my book, who do you believe? The guy who was there and says he didn't write it or the guy who <laughs> wasn't there and says he did? You know? uh, it was, it's, it's Robert Shaw's best work. And of course, now, you know, three years ago, two years ago, some fan sends me a note on Facebook and says, are you familiar with this book? And it's a book called Shark Attack, published in 1960. And in it is the Herbie Robinson vignette of the guy bobbing to the surface being bitten in half. Sackler didn't write that. Even Sackler stole it from someplace, someplace else. So that, that scene is a, a true collaboration. And it's, and it's proof that a lot of cooks can make the broth into real soup. So you have, this, you have a horror film. Now you have an adventure story. And you have our heroes kind of winning at the beginning. And then, of course, after the drunk scene, the shark turns it. So how did you guys approach the final battle scene? Because it's very quick. Hooper, Shaw, the Brody stepping up. How did you guys envision that? Was it just? Well, I mean, it, it was scripted. You know, this, this happens, then this happens. And then, then Shaw gets eaten, and Quint gets eaten, and then he's left alone. And, in the, and we wanted to leave it ambiguous as to whether Dreyfus survives or not. And it was uh, David Brown's idea. He's as, as a commercial producer of Hollywood films. He said, "Gee, we could probably get like a, a cheer from the audience if Hooper pops up at the end. So let's not let's not kill him." And I said, "Great! You know, he didn't he didn't he didn't uh, sleep with the police chief's wife like he does in the book. There's no there's no moral reason, there's no dramatic reason to punish him, you know, by having him die. So let's have him live. So uh, we did." And of course, it's, it's fascinating having Brody, the, let's say the weakest of the three characters, the one who actually steps up and fights him off. For those of you who are fans of uh, a show called Mythbusters on television, they tried to replicate exploding an air tank with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do it. But... Like all good dramatic license by that point in the film, because you believe in the film, because you're immersed in the experience, it all hangs together. And I love it because of the, the foreshadowing. Uh, you, you, you may have noticed, you may not have noticed, that when they're first loading the boat, the tank, you know, they, mm-hmm. they make something out of the fact that the tank rolled and... His, uh, Dreyfus says, you know, come on, those things are explosive, they'll blow up. And then they don't talk about it again for two reels. And then it's not until the very end when he hits the shark in the mouth with it and you go, oh, that's right, these things explode. And then, of course... There's a clever shot early where the, the, the air tank bangs into the ladder yeah. and Brody just puts his like elbow yeah. on it to yeah. stop it. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, you know, we've, we've been realized screenwriters, I've never heard of such a collaborative experience. Like the actors, the director, the writing, is that just something you think it just, you ever experience again? Or is it something really special for that movie where just everybody was just together on it? Um, uh, I've worked, I've, ha- I've been in a lot of collaborative enterprises. Uh, in improvisational theater, you're at the mercy of your fellow actors on stage. Um, Jaws was probably one of the happiest collaborations of my life where everything did work. Nobody had anything to prove. Steven wasn't Steven Spielberg yet. 
you know, you know, everybody was doing the best they could. It was, you know, it was a Hollywood picture with not a particularly big budget. You know, it was going to be a summer popcorn movie at best. You know, just make it, get it out there, get some money, and uh, everything worked. It's one of those, you know, it's like it's like Casablanca in that regard. Uh, well, before we head out to our food, because you have good food in the reception, oh, very boy. Jaws-themed oh, food. Fish. I don't fish? know what that means. Filet uh, fish? My interns have told me. <laughs> but we're going to ask, uh, let you guys ask a couple of questions. So raise your hand. Uh, the interns will be running around with mics. We've got some nice chum for you, people. Chum. Uh, <laughs> we have some seal meat with, you know. Uh, so raise your hand. Thank you for a delightful behind-the-scenes look. Mr. Gottlieb. There's more in the book. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I was wondering about Spielberg's getting the directoral role here, and if you could shed a light on that, because it seemed to me, I saw Duel 2, and I liked it, but <laughs> I, I thought the Jaws made him in terms of establishing his credibility. What do you think? I'm, I'm sorry, Jaws made it what? Establish his credibility as oh, a Oh, yeah, no, no, he, he was... Stephen is, is was and remains, you know, preternaturally gifted in the three major areas where you have to succeed to become the mogul that he has become. First of all, he really knows directing. You know, just mechanically, he knows a camera from a chicken. He knows how to direct a movie. Uh, he's, you know, making movies in his backyard when he was a kid. All, all that lives film. Two, he has an incredible sense of the audience. I mean, Stephen is somehow a global audience wrapped up in one person. I mean, he, if, if he gets it, then the world will get it. I don't know. How do you do that? I don't know. And the third thing is that he is really knowledgeable about studio politics and how the business works. And most people have two out of three. He has all three. So while we were shooting, I mean, he cast Lorraine Gary in a lead role, and she was the wife of the studio head. That, you know, you might say that that was a political move. Uh, but she was a very good actress. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I started to, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, well, you got Sid's wife, you know, he, he's, he's not going to pull the plug on this movie. <laughs> and, and, and Stephen said, "No, no, you know, watch the Marcus Nelson murders, and you know she's uh, plays Telly Savalas's girlfriend. And she's great in it, and she's a good actress." So I watched her. Yeah, yeah, she is a good actress. She was wonderful. Um, so you know, he has this—he has a great eye. He—he, uh, he, uh, you know, he is—he's great for recognizing moments that happen spontaneously and, and preserving them, like the thing with the kids. You know, the making the face. You know, that. The little kid was just messing around with Roy. Roy was messing with the kid while they were waiting between takes. Mm. And Roy said to Stephen and, and, and me, he said, look at, you know, look at what the kid's doing. He's, he's copying me. And Stephen said, great, Shh, you know, let's, let, let's roll. You know, well, well, we haven't finished setting, just, just roll. And, and we got that, that moment. Uh, uh, so... He, he, you know, is, uh, completely deserves his place in the Pantheon because uh, he has, you know, all those things. 
he's a genius. He's the happiest collaboration of my life. Uh, let's get one more in so we can have nice, good food. We're going to go with you because you sat in the front. Because uh, you wanted uh, the other question. The immersive experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, a screenwriting professor of mine said the statement that a bad director can make a good movie out, out of a good script, but a good director cannot make a good movie out of a bad script. That's correct. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's uh, this whole thing about you know, uh, the old adage is, is, you know, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Uh, you have to have a screenplay in order for, for the most gifted auteur director there's got to be some kind of text to work from. And the classic illustration of that is the great director Frank Capra, who was the first director, Hollywood director, to get his name above the title. Not before John Ford, before Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Capra. And it was known as the Capra Touch, because he made you know, It's a Wonderful Life and, and you know, just all these wonderful movies. And... He worked with the same writer all the time, a writer named Robert Riskin, who understandably got tired of hearing about the Capra touch because they were <laughs> Robert Riskin's scripts. So at a time when they were gearing up to do the next Capra film, it was a studio system. You know, the screenwriter had to de- deliver a screenplay, and then the director and the department heads would get it, and they would make a movie. So Robert Riskin walks into Frank Capra's office, tosses a screenplay on his desk. Capra opens the pages and it's blank just 100 blank pages stapled together and Riskin says let's see you put the Capra touch on that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is true a bad director can make a a good film from a good script a a, a good director can make a a great film from a good script nobody can make a good film out of a bad script uh, well, we always end our evening with the same question. Uh, can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had, possibly with a child with your family, that inspired you as much as Jaws inspired a lot of us? <sighs> Day for night, Truffaut, mm. where I realized I had made the right choice. You know, uh, this, it, there's a, a moment where a secondary character says to a, another secondary character, uh, you know, the the script supervisors, some actress is left with a guy who has run off with a man and a dedicated, like the script supervisor is saying, I can see leaving a guy to do a movie, but to leave a movie to be with a guy, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's, that, that's it. You know, the work is better than not work if there's a chance to, to make a movie or to be in a show or to create something for an audience and then sit with them and watch it either to be on stage and getting a direct feedback or to create it and then watch other people put it on stage or on screen and sit in the back and watch the reactions and, and fiddle with them as, as, as you can in, in more and more these days. That's, uh, that's the best thing. And I guess and one other defining moment. I was a comedy writer on the Smothers Brothers show. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a sketch and you know, turned it in and it was, it was scheduled for shooting and then I went on to write you know they were writing four or five weeks ahead you know so this week's show you've written you know a month ago you don't even remember it and somebody said hey you know the they're filming the or they're shooting the the uh, the World War 1 
a flying sketch with Tom and Dick's mothers and Tony Randall. And it, and it was a kind of a takeoff on Dawn Patrol, those World War I flying movies. And it, that was a sketch. And I went down, and the curtains were drawn on the stage. And a month or five weeks earlier, I had typed, Lights up on World War I Army Air Corps barracks. Uh, Tom and Dick are doing this. Tony Randall enters as the officer. And then the sketch proceeds. Now the, they say, all right, ready for, you know, ready for act, act one, scene three, sketch. Curtains open. And from those you know, eight words, you know, up, you know, lights up on World War I Army Air Corps barracks, all of a sudden there was an Army Air Corps barracks. There was bunks and extras and guys in uniform and, and a, a pot-bellied stove with a coffee pot steaming on it and laundry hanging, you know, and, and uniforms and a propeller on the wall. I said, Jesus, I just a couple of words. And look, here it all is. And better yet, they're saying the words just like I wrote them. <laughs> What's better than that? You, you, you sit alone in a room and you create a reality that then comes into existence. And it's, uh, it's scary real when that happens. It is the most exciting thing to know that from your words comes a reality. And then, you know, in the case of an iconic film like this one, uh, it, it stays real and alive and every time, you know, I, I watch her slap Roy and, and read those lines, I remember typing every one of those words, including the repetitions, you know, that I just wanted you to know that, and giving it to the actress, who being a good actress, memorized it and read it the way an actor should, which is with respect for the words. And she infused it with all the emotion that the moment needed. And, you know, that that's that's the best there is. You, you make, you're making... You're, you're kind of godlike. You're making something out of nothing, and that's that's the greatest thing there is. Well, uh, for me, I mean, I, this movie I adored as a child, and I we just I can't tell you how happy I was to be able to share this with you and this audience, and we'd be able to bring the film back to a whole new audience. And thank you so much for sharing your insights thank with you. this wonderful thank film. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.